Urban planning and design professor Gerald Caden once said, to plan is human, to implement divine. So many changes in new mobility rely on the look and feel of our cities gradually shifting. What needs to change and how those changes actually get implemented? That's the question. Joining us for episode three of the Red Blue Expert series is an urban planner, Leora Steinberg, who happens to also have started his own firm in Rotterdam called Humankind. Lior and his team work with local governments on refactoring urban space through projects like dedicated micromobility lanes or increased green space, and always through the lens of what he calls making cities more people-centric. In our conversation, we dive into not just what should change about cities, but how politically those changes can actually get done. It centers largely on European and U.S. cities, but with reflections on things that can impact cities around the world. Lior, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Leo, just jumping in, you're deeply involved in the world of, let's call it micromobility. I don't know if that's the term you'd use. It's become, I think, a more fashionable term these days, but maybe it wasn't always called that. I think in Europe, in places like the Netherlands, you know, biculture has been uh, a thing for a long time. But when you think about these kinds of micromobility-based cities, what do you kind of think of as an interesting model of a place where it really works well and what are the effects like what is good about it when you see it working well so so just to be sure when you are saying so we we, we need to all use the same terms here right so when you are saying micro mobility you mean of course cycling you also mean scooters right and maybe small cars anything that that isn't a car so the the way i i call bike lanes micro mobility infrastructure basically i see a third grade of infrastructure besides car uh, infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure, and transit infrastructure. So I think there's kind of four categories of infrastructure. Perfect. And micromobility is the thing that has, in some meaningful sense, become a, a fourth option for urban planners to create a transportation network that is often higher throughput than either pedestrian infrastructure or car infrastructure because it can move people faster but also requires less space and then creates a city in an urban environment with a certain kind of feel. Yeah, I, I love this definition. So we have those four categories, walking, then micro-mobility, which will be the normally two wheels kind of mobility, then the car, and uh, lastly, the public transportation, transit, uh, metro, trams, buses, trains. And I think that micro-mobility, as we define it here, and the car falling between the walking and the mass transit. And in a perfect city, you would have as little as possible private cars and as much as possible micromobility, right? So that's that's the balance. I think that micromobility is in a sweet spot. That it, it can also replace mass transit. Uh, it can also replace walking, but mostly when you do it well, it can replace private car ownership and of course car trips. There are cities that do it in different ways. So you have a city like Vienna that just has excellent public transportation system and then you don't have so many people who, who use a car. So people can walk, use public transit, and then some people use the car, some people use the bike. So that's one way to do it. Then you have a city like Amsterdam that put a, a lot of focus on cycling. So you don't have such an amazing public transportation, although it is still world-level public transportation. Then you will have a lot of people cycling, and driving is just impossible because there is no space. And then you have other cities or most cities around the world that just have been investing so much in, in cars where there is no space for this alternative, the micromobility alternative to, to take back the space and to bring back balance to the mobility system in the city. 
So I, I guess looking at it as the as those four categories, I think that the the biggest uh, challenge is to move people from the private car ownership to the micro mobility. And it's interesting. It's interesting because in most cities, what you see is this sort of fighting between the walkers and the cyclists, where the conflict that we should address is the removing infrastructure from car infrastructure to micromobility infrastructure. A lot of your career, you're dedicating towards that transition, right? Getting more micromobility infrastructure to make the perfect city, as you might describe it. Can you point to the cities that, I mean, you listed a few of them just now, but point to like the evolution that cities can go through. Like you start with something like, say, a Los Angeles or a Phoenix, and you end with a you know, Vienna or a Copenhagen. But how do you know what's the gradient and how do is it the same set of prescriptions you have for every city or, or how does it change when you start to look at a you know particular locality? So what is first important to to remember is that no city starts like Los Angeles. Los Angeles had great public transportation in the past and people decided to to turn it into the way it is now. But uh, being realistic, currently in this day and age, most cities are at the starting as Los Angeles, right? Very car-centric. It is almost impossible to use public transportation because it is just not comfortable, not efficient. You cannot get to your destination with public transportation, let alone walking or cycling. It's just impossible, and then you are forced either to buy a car or to stay at home or find someone to, to, to bring you to, to your destination. So it's important to remember that it is not the starting point as in, in the history, but it is the starting point right now. And now we need to convince people and cities that they can reach to be a Vienna, to be a Berlin, to be a Copenhagen, even to be a New York. I think some people listening to this might be coming from living in a city that's, that's car-centric and might be quite happy with it. People that live in LA are often very pro-LA. They like LA a lot as a city. Why should they consider you know, transitioning from what do you think is a bad mode to a good mode? What is wrong with cars? Because for the most part, if you have a spread out enough city, you can get around in cars and you might have more space. So maybe there are good things about that. How do you, how do you think about that trade-off? So I think that when you live in a city like Los Angeles, you have two options. You're either a winner or a loser. If you have enough money and you bought a house in a good location, you're a winner because you can buy a, you can buy a car and you can get to work, you can pick up your children from, from school, you can do whatever you want with a car. But this is not the majority of people in Los Angeles. The majority of people cannot afford a car. I think that a lot of decision makers and people close to decision makers are indeed satisfied with cities like Los Angeles. But we need to remember that those cities are just unfair cities. There are so many people there that suffer that they cannot choose where to work because they cannot, cannot get to work. They cannot choose where to live and they suffer from air pollution. Um, their children are not able to play out on the street because streets are dangerous. Women cannot walk alone at night from the bar because it is just dangerous to walk in an empty street where all you have is a highway crossing the street. And in that sense, I think, yeah, it's true. It is fine for some people. Those people are normally closer to the decision makers, so their voice is louder. But if you actually see who is benefiting from car-centric uh, society, it's definitely not the majority. Do you have ways of like measuring in cities um, those kinds of outcomes? Like when you work with a city and, and you see changes happening in, in transit infrastructure, do you see various changes or is this more like a feel, a sense? It's hard to kind of put your finger on 
how this works? So is there actual ways to kind of determine or measure this? So there are beautiful ways to measure it. Uh, in a project in Rotterdam where they analyzed where to add um, public transportation stations, what they measured is how many jobs are added to a person's uh, reachability within one hour of commuting. So this is a great way to, to, to measure uh, how investment in infrastructure can help our daily life because if there are suddenly 100,000 more jobs added to my options to, to places that I can reach to um, it definitely uh, it, it shows the effect of investing in for instance public transportation but the way to see it in a micro level in a small project for instance transforming a parking lot into a, a plaza and allowing people to just sit there and uh, allowing the, the restaurants around to, to put their terraces out there. The way to, to, measure, to measure success there is just interviewing people before and after or measuring the amount of people shouting at you before and after. So normally we get people shouting at us before and if our projects are successful, we get people uh, <laughs> shouting at us less after. You mentioned Rotterdam and you live there, right? Yeah. So maybe that's an interesting example of a city that's gone through a transition. I think some of the, the places you mentioned as kind of beacon cities, um, Vienna and Copenhagen and Amsterdam, have always had, you know, an old uh, city kind of feel to it. They weren't built around cars. They're built around transit or, or something else and with a lot of density already. Um, but other cities have gone through transitions. And I think Rotterdam is, is maybe one of those. Um, so it would be interesting to hear more about that transition um, and how it has changed over the years. I think Rotterdam is, is super interesting because it is a Dutch city. It is 40 minutes away from Amsterdam, which is considered a heaven for cycling and just for urbanism. And the people living, although Rotterdamers, people living in Rotterdam will, will swear to you that they are not like Amsterdamers, they are kind of the same people, right? I mean, you cannot claim that the culture here is very different than there. And yet, it will be much more difficult to convince people here to, to remove parking spaces. In Amsterdam, it would be much easier. And this just shows how having such a, a very car-centric environment for so many years just changes the way we understand our public space and that we uh, perceive our public space. It is also changing the patterns in which we live. If you live in a city like Amsterdam, it is very normal to, to limit your, uh, your travels to what you can do with a bike. But it's not a limitation because you can get anywhere with a bike and you just plan your life. You will send your, your child to a school, uh, which is 20 minutes away from the house. You will, uh, the afternoon activities will be happening also around your house. And the city is developing in that in that pattern of living and working and enjoying around your your home. And in a city like Rotterdam, where driving a car was very easy and cheap, just like many North American cities, uh, you start to spread out. So you suddenly don't think that it's so problematic to have your child. Uh, going to school on the other side of town because you can just take them with a car and taking a job then 30 minutes away with a car is also not a problem and you build your life in a way that car is very dominant and you need to own a car in order to live and i'm not saying that all people do it but it is possible and therefore people do it 
And then when you suddenly propose to them to remove parking from their street, they are shocked, they are, they are scared because you are ruining their entire rhythm of, of living. And that's, that's what that's what's happening in so many cities around the world, and especially, of course, in the USA, that was a rich country that developed for the car. Sorry, I just want to double-click. How has Rotterdam changed as a city? So I think what happened in Rotterdam, and of course it is because it is a Dutch city that still had Dutch heritage and Dutch planners that studied and lived in other cities in the Netherlands, is that the city realized that it cannot go on like that. It is not nice. It is very polluted, it is loud. There are safety issues, both traffic safety issues, but also personal safety issues with empty streets that are just don't feel comfortable to walk in. Companies don't want to move to Rotterdam and uh, place their businesses there because why would you if you could do it in another beautiful city 20 minutes away like The Hague or Utrecht or Amsterdam? Um, and having this Dutch knowledge of planning mixed-used places, the city just started to to adapt, adapt itself and they did it since the 90s, basically building much more mixed-used infrastructure, so having much more people living in the city next to where they work, and also performing sort of road diet, you know, taking a street with three lanes for cars and turning it into a street with one lane, installing a lot of great bicycle infrastructure very wide bicycle infrastructure because the streets are very wide so there is a lot of space making great connections between what we call here micromobility right uh, cycling back then and now also maybe scooters to public transportation and investing heavily on the experience on eye level the street level so how how people perceive their daily walking and cycling uh, instead of seeing empty facades the city has invested in creating beautiful facades, uh, where there are open cafes, uh, where uh, there are green elements, where people can open up their house and have a feeling of much more comfortable place to live and walk in. So I think that's the biggest change that Rotterdam has experienced. And then of course you got a lot of young creatives that moved to the city, and then you had this effect of more people moving to the city, uh, the city is developing. Uh, the city sees this uh, success and investing more in active mobility, in active living. And I think Rotterdam is a success story in that, in that sense. If you look at the progression you just talked about, you started with a bad situation, but people knew that there could be something different because Rotterdam is surrounded by other cities that are different. And now you're suggesting it's sort of on the up and up, right? There, There is a positive vortex, so to speak, as people see the benefits of removing car infrastructure, they want to keep doing it. But that first spark, which is the understanding that there is a different future possible. I think that so many cities don't have that spark. People you know, are still in the mindset of I'm defensive of what I have today because my life is built around this today. Accepting change is going to be short-term painful. How and you're thinking way beyond the Netherlands, right? Your organization is trying to get people to do change making in cities around the world. How do you talk to people in those types of cities? What's the correct uh, first action for, for cities where there hasn't been that spark? So if I'm speaking with leaders, and normally I have to admit those are leaders that want to make a change and they don't know how to start. So I can convince them with data and showing them how 
how they will benefit from creating more people-oriented streets. Uh, but this is the easy part because they are already convinced many times. They know that the current way of us planning cities cannot continue. And now they have a problem because they need to convince their citizens. And we already touched on it before, but people that are already the winners, uh, quote-unquote, are comfortable with the way things are. And those are tend to be more powerful people, people that have access to decision-makers. And therefore, you need uh, more success stories. And that, that's why I always urge decision-makers and leaders to start with the, with the easiest places, you know, places where maybe it doesn't seem easy, but those are places where they're very busy, they're in the city center, you already have a lot of pedestrians, but you also have cars there. And you just know that if you will remove the cars, although it seems to be very difficult, it will be a success because you already have all the other infrastructure there. You know, Times Square in New York is a, the famous example. It seemed almost impossible to think that you can close such an important intersection and it just works because you have so much other amenities there. And every city has this place where it's just way too busy because so many people want to be there. This is a great example where you can exactly close for cars because people will get there in other ways. And then you need to celebrate the success. You need to, to measure it, you need to, to just celebrate it, to have a festival there, have, let people enjoy, help the businesses around, because those are very strong voices. If you bring more uh, customers to the, those businesses, they will just support you. If people experience that their street is quieter, they will support you. If they will see their children playing there outside, they will support you. You just need to, to find out what, what people want in that area and try to provide it. Don't just make decisions based of, of what people are afraid of. The Times Square example, that was under Jeanette Sadiq Khan with the Bloomberg administration, right? So, so in her book, she talks about this concept of, uh, I think she says action without consensus, which you know plays into the whole people's fear of powerful liberal mayors like Bloomberg, you know, cutting down on things that are anti-democratic. But in some ways, um, I, I think to your point, the people that actually can influence policy today in democratic systems might not necessarily be the majority. They might represent a very narrow range of interests, right? Could you have examples you could talk through of where political leadership has done things that are unpopular in the short run and, and gotten them through in the long run, maybe outside of New York City? Because I think everyone points to the changes in New York and, and you know how popular they've become. But what are cities that have had politicians take a risk and actually exhibit leadership and not have it had backfired so much. I'm not a political scientist, but I think it is so strange that the only thing we are looking for consensus on is creating nicer, more walkable, safer and comfortable streets. Nobody has ever invited me to a participation meeting as a resident when the city built more parking spaces. Nobody is inviting me to participation meetings when they are building a new highway. So it seems like that building car infrastructure doesn't need consensus. It just requires engineers making their decisions. It is the default, so to speak. Exactly. And we are living in this status quo where we are going to keep doing the same thing, although so many professionals already know is wrong. And we just keep doing it. And then we are looking for consensus. But as we already talked before, it is so difficult to convince people 
in Rotterdam, in Northern American cities, in most cities around the world. People that are so used to the car, it's so difficult to convince them that it can be different. They have to experience it. I read the other day uh, a post actually on LinkedIn by uh, Chris Brownlett, and he told about the city of Ljubljana in Slovenia that closed uh, the city center for cars. So a huge area in the city center was just completely closed for cars. And they did a survey before closing it, and there were only uh, 40% of residents that were in favor. Uh, that was in 2007. And a decade later, they did this survey again, where people could already experience a car-free city center. And now there are 97% of population that are in favor of keeping this city center closed for cars. So when you have these numbers, you just know that it's just impossible to ask people about making a change before they experience this change. I think that, that if we elected a mayor, they have five years to convince us, or four years, or they have a full term to convince us that, uh, that they can make a nicer city, and they don't need to reach an agreement for every little change in the city. If people are not satisfied with them, they will just stop electing them. You know, the city of Tel Aviv is such a beautiful example. People seem to be all the time angry at the mayor of Tel Aviv for all his actions against cars. And yet, for every election, they keep electing him. This just shows either that people are angry very shortly and then change their mind, or that most people are not angry and we just hear a very small group of people that that are not satisfied with these actions, and yet the majority of people are just happy. I, I was just given uh, given this this phrasing or this framing. Uh, I was reminded of a of a quote that I think is is quite relevant, which I think you'll enjoy. But basically, that the most unhappy voices are the loudest, but they're not necessarily representative of the whole. It's a quote from Machiavelli of all people, and says it ought to be remembered that there is nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more, more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. Because the innovator has for enemies all those who have done well under the old conditions and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well under the new. This coolness arises partly from fear of the opponents who have um, the laws on their side and partly from the incredulity of men who do not readily believe in new things until they have had long experience of them. And, and I think this is just so true for, for, for changing anything in, in urban space because, I mean, this is the problem of nimbyism. People who have assets have strong vested interests in not losing access to those things. Um, and they will fight tooth and nail in order to stop certain kinds of changes, um, whereas the benefits are quite diffuse. Um, everybody in a city benefits from a network of transit infrastructure, but you have to fight these pitch battles over every piece of real estate in order to build out a complete network, right? That, that seems like the real challenge of shifting um, mobility infrastructure or transit infrastructure. I mean, you mentioned Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is trying to build a light rail uh, network, so everywhere you build that, you've got to uproot roads and um, dig tunnels and it takes years and you've got years of congestion and so people are very unhappy about that. Um, so I think all these kinds of changes are hard to bring about even though the order that you get at the end of it is net beneficial for everybody in the city. Yeah, what a, what a beautiful quote and thoughts. I'm trying to think about is it undemocratic if you are making a decision that is benefiting the majority of people 
without having a consensus. I don't know. I mean, you have all those all those great transportation systems around the world. Actually, if you think about it, all of them were built in either undemocratic places like China or in places that we know as democratic, uh, but they were built before those countries were fully modern democracies. So, I mean, the tube in London could not have been built now. The metro in Paris as well. There are too many too many rules and regulations and participation uh, demands that would not allow you to build a metro in Paris right now. And what you see in Tel Aviv is the same. Israel is, to, to a certain extent, a democratic country with uh, democratic regulation and rules and uh, human rights and uh, civil rights. And yet the only way to, to be able to build a metro system and a and light rail system in, in Israel, in Tel Aviv, is only if you make a very top-down decision by the national government and you sort of nationalize all the land where your metro is supposed to go through. So you don't really allow for almost anyone to, to object your plans. And I don't think that anyone is building this metro in order to to be remembered as a great builder or just for the sake of their own fun. They're building it because they know it's it's what is going to make the city thrive. I wonder, where, where do we need to stop asking questions? Where, where do we need to start asking uh, people for consensus? It's such a complicated topic. You're starting with the hardest thing and you're playing it on hard mode, which is taking an established city and then nationalizing it through eminent domain to build an extremely expensive subway project. But even when you get to easier things, which is like, take big intersections and shrink them and make it so that cars don't have these wide turning radiuses and they have to actually come to a complete stop. And like this small changes that make cities less dangerous, more walkable, more pleasant. Um, even those things, when you ask people if you should do them, like the response that you hear, not the response that if everyone actually was sitting around a table and had, you know, you had a fully sort of involved conversation, but the response you hear is no, don't change that, right? So start with an easier game to play, which is like the smaller changes. Your point earlier was that it's not even a democratic system today because there is no consensus required to build a new intersection or to build a new road or something of the sort. Um, and so in systems where we just have these default kind of modes of building out cities, how do you kind of go into the defaults and start to tinker with them? Because no, nobody's every year checking with every citizen in the city, hey, do you like the way that, that streets are, are set up? Or do you think the streets are too loud, right? They just keep building them the way they've always built them. How do you go and start making changes? I, I know you've built some tools to, to try introducing that. I agree with you that even making a small change is difficult. But my experience is that most people in or at least the people you know that hire us or work with me, they want to make the change. So I don't need to invest a lot of time convincing traffic engineers um, and urban planners, at least those who, who I work with. I don't need to convince them that adding a bike lane is the right thing to do in terms of mobility. We all know already, and you know, young professionals already know that this is 
the right thing to do. It will carry more people. It is just a, a, a better way to plan streets. And yet, it is hardly done. And the reason it is hardly done is because it is a very difficult political decision, even if it is such a tiny street. Because if you're a mayor and you have your chief planning officer coming to you and offering you a new bike lane in a city that doesn't have any bike lanes, you might be agreeing with that, but then you are facing a huge demonstration by the residents of the streets because you might be removing some parking lanes and by drivers going through the streets that might be uh, now scared of uh, traffic jams. And let's say that you are very, you have a lot of courage and you're just going for it because you're a strong leader. Then you end up with a bike lane that hardly nobody uses because it is not connected to anything. So you just build one small link in what should be in the future a system, but now it is nothing. It is just a few hundred meters of bike lane that nobody can use. And I think that this is mostly where most cities get stuck in. And then they start receiving the, the criticism and those infrastructures normally don't work standalone. It is like building a, a new road connected to, to nothing and then saying, yeah, you see, it doesn't work. We should not build any more roads because nobody uses them. But it's because the road is not connected to anything. Roads work best when they connected to other roads where cars can come from and go to. So that's, that's the reason why even making the smallest change in, in a city that is stuck in a status quo is so difficult. It feels like a small change, but it is so difficult. And in your question, you also mentioned how we develop tools that help decision makers and planners to, to change their cities. We developed a, a really cute, nice tool called uh, the way to go. And the idea is that uh, we allowed for free uh, to uh, planners and architects and decision makers to find great examples for, for streets. Uh, basically, the way it works is that they uh, fill in the dimensions of their street and instead of um, doing all the difficult work of replanning the street, maybe based on their own biases or the way it is done currently in their cities, they are just getting already a designed example from the Netherlands. So we basically scanned all the great streets of the Netherlands and we offer cities all around the world to just pick up great references that might fit their current need. There's a subtle genius there. It's like, you're a city planner, you don't want to do work, <laughs> press a button and then half your street looks suddenly like all done for you. It almost like flows into the biases people already have. That, that's interesting. I, I think we're talking about how hard it is, right? And, and, and all these changes that are difficult. But I think what's really exciting to me about micromobility infrastructure is one, I think there's a there's a massive tailwind um, in terms of our generation and how we think about broad issues like the environment. You know, if if you th there is a sense that we're kind of getting to the end of cars and there's something that comes after. And beyond that, um, I think there is a movement that is starting to take shape across many cities. I'd, I'd say Europe and and Asia are, are way ahead of the U.S. on this, but. Um, you've got lots of examples now which wouldn't have been necessarily so clear. I mean, the, the pendulum has, has turned um, of how you can actually implement these changes. But beyond that, micromobility is much easier to do than transit. Transit 
is a nightmare to build dedicated right of way, etc. Because you're basically digging up streets and and even harder making tunnels. You're putting billions of dollars. I mean, the cost in New York is or, or London of of building a new transit line uh, is in the billions of dollars per mile or kilometer. Uh, in many other cities, it's like five hundred million dollars. But bike infrastructure is often just about you know, removing some parking spaces that exist and repainting the road and, you know, setting up some barriers so that it feels safe. So it's a, it's a, it's an easier lift. Um, the benefits are clear, and I think there are lots of examples. And, and I think maybe in your work day-to-day, you, 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 like there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cities in the world that are contenders for building this infrastructure, and you're in this fortunate position where you've got all these leaders that are actually coming to you. They're already convinced. It's really just about tactics and not so much about shifting mindset, at least on the leadership level, um, and then getting these changes to start happening. And you are, so to speak, on the right side of history that when these things do take effect, and if they're done well and implemented effectively, people then look at this and go, oh, wow, I didn't realize this before, but this is actually way better, and I want to keep this. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think that what, what is nice about cycling, as, as you mentioned, it, it can be done in a relatively cheap way. And that's why if a mayor decides to build one, you know, very good bike track, separate and big, a project that requires still a lot of budget, I would urge them to use the same money, but for just building much more bike lanes, uh, maybe reducing uh, the amount of car lanes in, in a street and just painting bike lanes. Get first the masses using a, a simple network and then it will be so much more easy to build a bike infrastructure in the city. This is so interesting, this, this movement of tactical urbanism, that in recent years a lot of, of what, what started as a, a sort of a bottom-up, uh, almost demonstration by angry communities that wanted to, to achieve change and they didn't find a way to do it in uh, using current planning schemes. They just took a paint and painted the road as a demonstration. Now we have a lot of cities that use tactical urbanism as a, as a legitimate planning tool, just a cheap way to try out new schemes, measure if they work and then make them permanent. I don't know how it is going in the US. Uh, in that sense, I find that Europe really uses it as, as, as a valid planning tool. Yeah, I mean, we're all drinking a certain kind of Kool-Aid, but I think one challenge is convincing enough people in a city and, and part of your tactical approach of building out a, a sufficient network, even if it's not a perfect network, is getting people to experience it. But beyond that, I think there's two other things. The one is, how do you start shifting mindshare, even amongst people that haven't necessarily experienced this and don't have the basic network? I think there are more and more people trying to make these arguments and make them in more structured ways in order to, to convince people. You mentioned tactical urbanists and like ways in which people are, are reacting and acting, but I'm assuming there's also a network of people in this world of planning and thinking about it that's grown over time uh, that can strategize together or implement things together. So how have communities formed um, that are pushing towards these kinds of changes? Uh, successful cities are completely congested. If you look at Tel Aviv, it is completely congested. There is no other way out of traffic jam than investing in public transportation and micromobility. And you have it in other, of course, successful cities like Paris, London. I mean, there is just no, no, no other way. There is no more space for building more roads. 
So you have this super trend where people already realize, oh my God, we just, we cannot stand life anymore sitting in traffic. Then you have, as you mentioned before, young generation that uh, just kind of has this sense of post-car world, post or at least post-private car world. I mean, people always bitch Twitter because it is so negative, especially when it comes to politics or other social issues. I think that the, the network that I surrounded myself with and the people I follow are mostly positive. They just share success stories. And I think then we need to align our, our story. We need to back ourselves with data and we just need to be all the time ready because there are always opportunities for change. When COVID came, we were just ready with a lot of tactical urbanism projects. We just need to be ready to react. We need to be ready to, to offer a solution. How can we move a lot of people without burning oil? We just need to be ready with already proven solutions. So Lyra, it's interesting you, you talk about positivity and being ready for a change. Uh, it seems like you're thinking way in the future because I've, I've seen you've actually published some urbanist children's books. Yeah, so that was another thing that I, I tried to do. I mean, if you look at how children grow nowadays and how at least I grew up, uh, I grew up with a lot of kind of car propaganda, you know, it was just it went without doubt that children like cars. So all books and all TV shows were about cars. I decided to release this children book because I think we need to start having our children grow with another way at looking at our cities. So I, I wrote this, this book, The Car That Wanted To Be A Bike. And it is not an anti-cars book, not at all. It is actually positive and it shows the nice sides of cars. But it shows that the world is changing and a lot of people want to move to a nicer way uh, of getting around cities. And even some of our cars want to do it. They want to become a bike. But I think that just releasing those, those stories, allowing parents to, to, to share those stories with, with children, um, actually kind of, you know, in a way, educating the future generation that there is another future. See, we've been talking throughout this podcast about your initiatives to change things, you know, your actions, etc. You, you talked a little bit about the software product you introduced, the book, but we're leading people on. Maybe go ahead and plug the, the organization that you're running and the events that you guys do to galvanize uh, what you call change makers around the world. Yeah, so we are very active online. My company is called Humankind and we have uh, free online urban mobility courses and we are running masterclasses in Rotterdam and the Netherlands. So if you want to come to the Netherlands, we are more than happy to show you around. I'll be taking you up on that. And uh, along, <laughs> I guess you're, you're right next to, to Rotterdam today. Cool. Yeah, I'm in Amsterdam, which is uh, apparently where Rotterdam is heading. <laughs> anyway, Leo, this has been super interesting to get your perspective on uh, how things are changing, what kind of processes uh, are happening to change it. I think very interestingly, why even though car-centric cities can be the default, they're unequal and, and why that's kind of a core problem and then ways in which we're concretely seeing these changes. So really appreciate your, your time and perspective and uh, excited for the next things you do. Thanks a lot for having me. It was really interesting to, to have this conversation with you.